Okay, so the vicissitudes of life. So last week we went through the. Uh, let's put our palms together. Namo Pemshi Shijamoni for. 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 Yeah. So last week we went through the the painful feeling and so on. The feelings are uh, so the 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 that sutta is often condensed into this. When someone shoot you an arrow, don't shoot yourself with a second arrow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it is very easy to understand. Why shoot yourself again? Yeah. The the. The difficult part is to understand that, uh, to understand what the second arrow is. The second arrow is for us our reaction, yeah. our reaction. Uh, <clears throat> but as I told Louis just now, uh, even as a teacher, uh, he, she didn't really ask about me. She was just asking generally. But uh, a friend told me, she said, why do you always, like, when there's a comment made, you will immediately think, oh, am I, am I having this problem also? Yeah. Uh, in a way, it's a form of introspection and self-checking. Yeah. And it is a practice that has become quite a part of how I am. Yeah. So, some people look at it and say, oh, why you take it so personally? Yeah, but it's not that I take it personally. But in a way, yeah, we have to take it personally. It's because we don't... Sometimes we take things personally, but some many things we are supposed to take personally, we don't take, take personally. Some things we shouldn't take personally, we can't take it personally. So for me, I told her, I said, um, I don't dare to say that when I of my students, uh, I'm totally without any of my ego influence also. Uh, but I like to think that for the most part, I see clearly that the student has this flaw, this fault, and needs to be torn. Yeah. Uh, the same goes for parent child, or among friends, or in the office, um, in any situation actually. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, in Buddhism, there's some science, some students, I think a few weeks ago, asked, how do we know whether we are enlightened? Uh, no certification. No one is there to kind of certify you. Yeah, we have to know ourselves. Yeah. That's why it's a painful process. Though. So, uh, page 32, the vicissitudes of life. This uh, vicissitudes of life <coughs> is about the eight worldly conditions. <coughs> These eight worldly conditions, monks, keep the world turning around, turning around, and the world turns around. This 
eight worldly conditions. Part eight. Gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. So, uh, if you look at this eight, there are four pairs. Yeah, four pairs. Yeah. And the four pairs, the pairs are all uh, opposites. Uh, are opposites. Oh. <laughs> so this four pair, uh, if you look at the first two, gain and loss, um, it is it is very direct. Uh, I've often mentioned about how worldly happiness is based on gain and loss. Yeah. If you gain something that you like, you're happy. If you lose something that you don't like, you're unhappy. If you gain something that you don't like, you're unhappy. If you lose something that you like, you're unhappy. Yeah. Gain and loss. But in this case, because of the next three pair, then gain and loss here is mainly about material things. Yeah. Because you can also say you gain fame. Yeah, but fame is highlighted really. Yeah, so here gain and loss is mainly about uh, like physical things. Or, um, or it can be maybe a position. Uh, but position will come with fame also. Yeah. Now if you look at fame and disrepute, and also praise and blame, uh, according to my teacher, the number two and number three, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, they are very similar things. The difference is, uh, so if you think about it, uh, fame and praise is are good things about you. People say good things about you. The difference is, praise is directly in your face. Yeah, people praise you, say in your face. Fame is spread around. Disrepute and blame, blame is directly in your face. Disrepute is spread around, not in your face. Uh, so, the second pair and the third pair are actually about the same thing. Yeah. Uh, but except one is directly in front of you, the other one, the second pair is uh, not in front of you, spread around. And the last pair, pleasure and pain, uh, is, is about the, can, should be seen as the previous sutra. Yeah. The su yeah, okay. The previous sutra. The the previous one about our experience of the world. Yeah, the feeling we have. Yeah. Uh and you can you can say that everything ultimately sum up to this, huh? uh, but you can also say that this is mainly about physical. Yeah. Physical pain and pleasure. Yeah. Because the the first few can be mental. Okay. So let's look. These eight worldly conditions, monks, are encountered by an uninstructed worldling, and they are also encountered by an instructed noble disciple. What now is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between an instructed noble disciple and an uninstructed worldling? Venerable Sir, our knowledge of these things has its roots in the Blessed One. It has the Blessed One as guide and resort. It would be good, Venerable Sir, if the Blessed One would clarify the meaning of that statement. Having heard it from him, 
The monks will bear it in mind. Listen then, monks, and attend carefully. I shall speak. Yes, Venerable Sir. The monks replied. The Blessed One then spoke thus. Uh, Louis, if you can uh, read. When an uninterrupted word remains, a monk's come upon him, he does not reflect on it. Thus, this game that has come to me is impermanent, born up with suffering, subject to change. He does not know it as it really is, and he come upon loss, pain and disrepute, praise and brain, he does not reflect on them thus. All these are impermanent, born bound up, bound up with suffering, subject to change. He does not know them as he, they really are. Okay, thank you. So this is the first pair. Uh, I'm going to invite you all to read the rest first, then I can explain further. With such a person, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, pleasure and pain, keep his mind engrossed. When gain comes, he is elated, and when he meets with loss, he is dejected. <laughs> when fame comes, he is elated. And when he meets with disrepute, he is detested. When praise comes, he is elated. And when he meets with blame, he is detested. When he experiences pleasure, he is elated. And when he experiences pain, he is detected. Okay, thank you. Uh, sorry. Being does involve and likes and dislikes. You will not be freed from uh, aging and death. From sorrow, lamentation, pain, dejection, and despair. He will not be freed from suffering, I say. But monks, when an instructed noble disciple comes upon gain, he reflects on it thus. This gain that has come to me is impermanent, bound up with suffering, subject to change. And so he will reflect when lost and so forth come upon him. He understands all these things as they really are, and they do not engross his mind. Thus, he will not be elated by gain and dejected by loss, elated by pain and dejected by disrepute, elated by praise and dejected by pain, elated by pleasure and dejected by pain. Having thus given up likes and dislikes, he will be freed from birth. Aging and death, from sorrow, lamentation, pain, dejection, and despair. You will be free from suffering, I say. This month is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between an instructed noble disciple and an uninstructed worry. Mm, thank you. So, this, uh, in a way, is a very short, concise sutta. And by now, you may find that uh, reading the sutras is quite different from reading normal books. It's quite different. Because this part is purely translated from what the Buddha has said. Um, at most, there may be some where there's a heading part that says, Oh, there was once uh, uh, the Buddha was at this place, that place, and he met this person, that person. 
But when it comes to the content, it's very straightforward and direct. The Buddha don't uh, talk about uh, currently in the world, this and that. <laughs> Just straight to the point. And that's why after, after um, ordaining, um, I, I read a lot of books in the library. Then one day, one of the senior monks came to me and suggested to me to read the Nikayas directly. He commended me first, saying that, Oh, I noticed you are very hardworking. Well, you read a lot of books. And I read maybe one or two books a week. So, um, then he, when he, after that he said, But yeah, I noticed that you are just reading the books by contemporary writers. That means modern writers. Uh, why don't you just go and hear from the horse mouth? Yeah. At least hear what the Buddha say himself. Then he introduced me to Majima Nikaya, the first sutra, the first Nikaya that he told me about. Then he brought me to the library and showed me the whole set. Yeah. And ever since then, I started read other books. Um, uh, I try in my talks to to also introduce the Nikayas. Yeah. Um, because once after you read the sutras, and later you, if you go and spend some time to read the the modern writings, uh, then you find that you read many 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 pages, the the message is actually that one small book. Yeah, but for the Buddha, he has no interest to come out in books, you see. So for each person, he really just give everything to you. He don't beat around the bush so that you come back for the next chapter. <laughs> no next chapter. Yeah. So that's the difference. So here, as far as the the four pairs, the eight items are concerned, uh, it is always in this. Uh, four of them are nice things that we like. Four of them are things that we are repulsed. The difference between an enlightened and unenlightened person the unenlightened person, what happens? When it happens to them, they don't reflect. So this is very interesting. Huh? He does not reflect on it thus. This gain that has come to me is impermanent, bound up with suffering, subject to change. Notice that there's no mention about no self. Yeah? Because the, the no self is a conclusion. Yeah. It's, it's not uh, what you ob observe directly. Yeah? It's a conclusion as a result. Yeah? But if you can observe these two parts that is impermanent and bound up with, with suffering, then your attachment will just go away. You will relate to it differently. Yeah? But for the unenlightened one, he doesn't do that. Yeah? He doesn't reflect in this way. Uh, reflect, the word reflect, in a way it means to think about it. Yeah, to think about it. So, in some of the tradition, we say that, oh, when you are meditating, cannot think. But, if you look throughout the whole Nikayas, in so many places, the Buddha and the, and the monks in the dialogue, it's always about reflection, about contemplation, to, to think about things. But, I must highlight, there's a difference between the way we usually think versus this way of thinking. Normal way of thinking, 
now someone give me something, I gave something. Oh, uh, uh, Orange decided to give me the this uh, Zoom Handy H5 recorder. Wow, this is so wonderful. Wow, this is so amazing. Wow, this is so good. Wow, I can record it with uh, Oh, last time I saw one recorder in Comic Sun that is also quite good. Uh, it was uh, handed by this other the the person called Ashton. Uh, before Ashton, there was uh, uh, this John Wu. Oh, John Wu is now working in uh, Media Corp. Uh, Media Corp. Oh, that actor. Ah, wow, the acting. Wow, that movie is. This is our normal thinking. We jump from one to another, <laughs> all over the place. You know, all over the place. It's uncontrolled, non-directed, and has has no scope. Yeah, and serve no purpose. Really <laughs> serve no purpose. Here, he does not reflect on it thus. But I, in what way are we supposed to reflect? Supposed to reflect that it is impermanent, bound with suffering, subject to change. Yeah, and you you don't leave this. You don't leave this. You know, you you just reflect on all the ways is impermanent, all the ways is bound with suffering, all the ways is subject to change. Reflection and contemplation is like that. It's very directed. Yeah. And the content may be different. Today is this, uh, but another day is something else. But the approach, the angle, is always the same. Yeah. What so, about when you, uh, sorry, uh, what about when you reflect and then you were trying to think of a solution? How should you handle the situation? Uh, is that called reflecting? Uh, in a way, it's reflection. Uh, but thinking of a solution is not does not solve your suffering. No, when you when you because when you meditate, then you try to think, okay, in this sort of situation, how actually I should react? Oh no, no, actually, uh, that is the worldly approach to things. Yeah, uh, but it's a very normal uh, conclusion that after we learn Buddhism, because like for example, when I give the example of the Buddha's way of reaction, right, uh, we tend to then look at the way the Buddha acts and think of how should I act. But instead, if we can understand why the Buddha react in this way, yeah, and how did he end up react, reacting in this way, yeah, uh, then we are, we are no longer, gonna, we will not spend time, or oh, if he's if this happened, how should I respond? But rather, we just go and look at the thing itself and relate and consider how do we relate to it. Mm. Uh, this is the approach. Uh, this is the approach. Uh, yeah. I... The way we... The way we uh, respond will come naturally. Yeah. Uh, what we need to to fix is the way we relate to things. When the way we relate to things have changed, the way we respond or handle things will just change. Yeah. And will change in a way that is of benefit for ourselves and others. Yeah. So instead of trying to go and figure out how to solve problems. Uh, here I'm talking purely about about um, cultivation. Uh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, 
Uh, there are times where I also suggest to people no harm spending a bit of time doing some uh, take, using some worldly approach as well. Yeah. For example, if a person like your daughter is studying for exams and I say, no, no, you just go and contemplate on how mathematics is impermanent. <laughs> well, if, if she does that, she can get enlightened. <laughs> but will not help her pass the exams. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, if we can reflect on the matter until we are done really clear that we have no more negative emotions towards the matter, towards the people involved, then we go and consider what is the best solution. Uh, this, is the, this is what currently I observe to be the better sequence. So step one, go and reflect on the matter or the person with respect to the Dharma. Yeah? So this first part, what is the purpose? To to reduce or mitigate our defilements. Put out the fire inside. Yeah. You must first put out the fire inside. If you don't put out the fire inside and you immediately jump in and try to think of a solution, <laughs> you'll, be a, you'll be a mess. Huh? Yeah. So once you put out the fire inside, then when, when it's subsided already or it's put out, then you then look at the problem. You may, you may come up with a, a better solution. Or you may find that there's no problem altogether. Yeah. Let me give you an example. Uh, when I was staying in the Buddhist library um, quite some, some years ago, uh, there was once uh, we were having lunch and somehow this thought arise in me, this feeling and thought arise in me. I feel like one of the devotees who is bringing food out, I feel like the person is, like, is not happy with me. You know, and I entertained the thought for a few moments, and I really feel like, wow, like quite good to me, you know. <laughs> then when I catch myself, then I immediately I change my mindset, and if I can use the word radiate meta, actually I don't know what it means to radiate meta. <laughs> when people always say radiate meta, radiate. But I just, I just think, uh, I just uh, relate to her with metta, with love and compassion. And so, when she came out again, I look at her and, uh, and smile at her. And I receive the plate from her. And, I, and, and then I realize that, eh, she's not angry with me. <laughs> eh, then, then she even talked to me. <laughs> Maybe it's the meta I related. <laughs> but maybe I also I also wonder, maybe she was never having any problem with me. The problem was inside me. But maybe she initially really have some. But when the moment I look at her and I greeted her and I said hello or I said ah Sinkunila. 
like uh, uh, I show my appreciation. Then immediately she responded differently. Yeah. So I say this um, because I'm not enlightened. Uh, so occasion occasionally I will still have the kind of funny thoughts arise in me. I mean, uh, this person do not me. That person not happy. Yeah. But now I am quite confident. Whether or not it's true, what is most important is how I respond to the world. Yeah. Because some days, even if nobody has any issue with me, everything that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, <coughs> If we look at the enlightened one, then it's basically the opposite. Yeah. Uh, and the important thing is, when you reflect in this way, what will happen? When you reflect in this way, then you will understand these things as they really are. Good things also come to pass. Bad things also come to pass. Yeah. Then, they do not engross his mind. It doesn't preoccupy your mind. People get, you know, uh, not amnesia, uh, so insomnia. People get depression. People have mental... I mean, some people are born with it. Uh. But in Buddhism, we say, even if you are born with it, it is because of the past karma that results in this. Uh, not everybody can accept this way of thinking, but that's the problem. Uh, but for those who are born normal and later become like stricken with mental issues, uh, uh, it's basically this. Yeah. If you cannot relate to things in a way, in the proper way, uh, and really see it as it is, then it will just occupy your mind. Occupy your mind. Uncontrollably. That's the important thing. Uncontrollably. It infects your mind. Uh, in fast your mind. Uh, it doesn't mean that everybody also go, will go crazy. But to the degree that you cannot let go, so-called cannot let go. Why cannot let go? Because you don't relate to it properly. Why cannot relate to it properly? Because you don't reflect properly. Yeah. Then to that extent, you will be stricken by those all these things. Whether happy things or sad things, you, you get affected. So this, ah uh, yes. Ah, uh, so go ask about uh, are there are there more people or less people who actually have faith uh, in the Buddha Dharma? Uh, 
and for those with faith, uh, would it then make it easier that when they hear and they can accept? Uh, and he mentioned about like sometimes when he asks questions, he or other people ask questions, they may have a bit of doubt. Yeah. So even when you have to answer, you may not fully accept. Yeah. Uh, before we are enlightened, for sure we will have some element of doubt. Uh, it's a question of what we are doubting. For example, some people spend all their time questioning whether there's heaven or hell. Uh, they question about whether there are other worlds, whether there are enlightened ones, uh, and so on. They question whether there's pure land or no pure land. Uh, this is one type. The second type are those who question whether um, the foreknow truth, whether it is possible. Yeah. They question whether suffering really arises from attachment. So, um, if we look at these two categories, then we can further split into those who have this doubt or these question marks uh, and they just hold on to that question mark. They don't seek to clarify. Or even when there are clarification or proof, uh, they, they, they just hold on to that conclusion and ignore whatever you say. Then there are those who are open to listen to different uh, angle of, of reasoning and they can uh, accept when there are new explanations or discoveries. Yeah. In both cases, then they can move from having doubt to having no doubt. Yeah. Having doubt to having no doubt. Uh, for myself, I have since young gone to temples and I've often, often hear both venerables and lay people say that, oh, you must not doubt, you must have confidence. Uh, like some even suggest that if you even dare to doubt the Buddha, you'll go to hell. But to me, I don't see this anywhere in the Nikayas. The Buddha don't say if you have, if you don't believe, you go to hell. No such a thing. The, the the truth and the fact is that if you're not enlightened, of course you will doubt. If you don't doubt, you are just you are you are just following blindly, and you are just um, accepting. Uh, out of respect for the Buddha uh, or out of belief or faith in that person who introduced you to Buddhism. And oftentimes we do this because of the good feeling. Whether it's a good feeling towards the, the friend who introduced you or the good feeling towards the teacher. For example, I, I ever shared, I think in class or in a small group, um, if a teacher, if a teacher is very eloquent, very smooth in the delivery, you know, uh, and look very convincing, then the the number of people who will accept is very high. But if a teacher is like, you know, explain halfway, like pause and then think, 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 then explain again, even if the same exact words are being said, but the delivery itself, it will affect how much you accept. Because most of us, 
most of us are easily affected by negativity. Yeah. And uh, and that's why there's speech training. Yeah, there's sales speech training, you know. Uh, to, to train you to be able to deliver in a very convincing manner. Um, but the truth is a truth, is a truth, is a truth. Uh, the problem is when people are not convinced, then they will not even try it out. Uh, for those who are convinced, it doesn't mean that they are enlightened. They still have to move beyond being convinced uh, to, to verification. Yeah. That's why in Buddhism, just having faith uh, will, not, will not get you anywhere. Just having faith. Now, this sutra is very interesting because uh, of this person called Su Tongguo. Su Tongguo is a person's name. Uh, it's a Chinese name. There's no other way to tell you it's Su Tongguo. <laughs> 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 so Su Tongpo is a is a poet, is a scholar in China. Uh, so I don't know the, the full exact detail of his background, uh, but he's a poet and scholar, very well known. And he learned Buddhism also. Like many of the scholars in his time, yeah, they are the, the, the scholarly elite. Yeah, and they pride themselves to be very learned. Uh, know the Dharma and uh, even I think the, the Taoist teaching she lost all kind of, like they learn everything there's a saying Qing Qi Su Hua Ge Ge Jing Tong Qing the, 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 the Chinese uh, musical instrument the very oblong rectangular with strings uh, Qing Qi chest Su uh, Su is it? Su Fa Su Fa uh, calligraphy join yeah. so these are four, four main uh, skills that uh, a scholar uh, what do you call Wen Ren that means uh, scholar should be scholar uh, is supposed to be encompassed so this person uh, is very proud of himself saying that you know he's very learned and so on and indeed he's very learned so he stays uh, along the one of the river and across the river is a temple. And so one day, he, he wrote, he, after learning a lot of teachings, he has this, ah, and he has this thought, and he write down. So he wrote down and asked his attendant, last time the scholars, they have an attendant, but he called Shu Tong. Shu, that means uh, book kit. <laughs> Literally means book kit. Yeah, Shu Tong. Yeah. That means basically refers to the attendant to a scholar. Yeah. Uh, so he asked the attendant to to send the the, the writings of his like uh, understanding across the river to uh, or I think it's a lake. Uh, no, Jiang Jiang is river, a big river, across the river to the other side and pass it to the monk. The monk opened up and read it. You know what he wrote? He wrote, uh, So the Ba Fong, eight winds. Yeah, so he, so this eight, eight worldly conditions, right? He described it like wind. Yeah. Because I think in some sutras he described this eight like wind. That whirling 
worldly unenlightened beings get blown left and right by these eight things. Beautiful analogy. Uh. Yeah. So, according to this poet, Sutong Po, he, he says, Pa Fong Chui Putong. So the eight winds, Pa Fong Chui Blow. Putong cannot move. Yeah. Cannot move, doesn't move. So he's, he says that he's unmoved by the eight worldly things. But he's such a proud person and he's like so full of himself. Uh, but he says such a thing. Uh, this is his own understanding. Uh, he thinks that, or he understands it to, to this point where uh, these eight things that the Buddha says, normal people get affected, he's not affected. In other words, he's making a claim that he's enlightened, you know. Most people, the, the whole story, most people don't realize that uh, Sutong Po is making a claim that he's enlightened. But in a very, like, uh, you see, so humble way, you know, he don't even just say in your face, oh, I'm enlightened. But he, he go in directly. Send over, the master open up and read it. And he just, uh, uh, he just, uh, in, I think he, he, either he write down or he say, uh, fang pi. Fang pi. It means bullshit. Yeah. Bullshit. Yeah. Mm. So, fang pi. Fang pi means fuck. Uh, in Chinese, it means bullshit. Uh. And then ask him to go back. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't remember whether he wrote down fang pi or he just asked him to go back. Did he just say Fang Pi? Ah, I think he wrote down. So send back. And when he opened up, wow, he got so upset. <laughs> wow, this time around, he just go personally. He went personally and asked. Uh, then he went over. How dare you? Now this one. Wow, I, I am, I'm such a well-known person. And I, I wrote down this is my own understanding. Wow, how can you insult me with such vulgarity, you know? Because to say fang pi is like, if you say just bullshit, in parliament you never say people, hear people say bullshit. <laughs> you know? In fact, sometimes when I say in, in talks, I say bullshit, rubbish, bullshit, or hell, a lot of people are like, how can a monk say this kind of thing? They went over, wow. And the monk just smiled and then said, Ba fong cui bu dong, yi pi da guo jiang. ยิ่งถ้าเป็นภาษาจีนนะสูตรเอ็กวินจะเซนมูคิวกัดจัสติสลิตเติลวินมูคิวอย่างนี้ใช่ไหมใช่ใช่ใช่ใช่ใช่
like uh, the sutra itself is very meaningful and uh, has a very important message. But in a way, now I, when I think about it, if not for Su Tongpo and his ego, uh, we don't have such an interesting story to really bring it to life. You know? <laughs> if you need such people who are so full of themselves to bring their teachings to life. Because otherwise, sometimes, and you notice this is a negative example, and sometimes negative example help us understand the positive teaching, teaching better. Because if you look at Venerable Sariputra, you look at all the great Arahans, they only do the right thing. But it's when someone, someone does something wrong or something stupid, then you can learn, ah, this is where it go wrong. Yeah. But, uh. was, there, was there anything in the story that says uh, what happened to him after, after that statement by the mom? Uh, any? Like, did he change? Did he change? Uh? I don't usually this part just chronicle this this exchange. Uh, maybe we can go and find out. Or maybe he went convert to other religion. Convert to other religion. Then immediately become a saint or something. Yeah. Uh, but uh, this, despite this, there are many of his writings that is quite, uh, fr from what I know, is quite treasured within the Buddhist community. Yeah, I mean, um, in in a way, there are many of these kind of stories that highlight that in the Buddhist lineage, uh, the the Zen masters they don't give a damn about how what position you are, whether you're even you're emperor, I don't care. Yeah, the truth is the truth, I will tell you in your face. You're a scholar, so what? You, you think you're so, so enlightened. <laughs> Freak you off. But, um, yeah, this, this is the, this is the, in a way, sometimes we, you may also, if you, if you, if, uh, if, a, if a disciple of Sutong Po hear of this story, they may feel very insulted also. They may feel like, wow, what, 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 so full of ego, wow, say such things. But the underlying message is actually not about the monk or so, and not about Sutong Po. Yeah. It's a lesson for us to reflect, are we truly free of that, you know, uh, wavering? Are we truly unaffected? Yeah. So I don't know whether he's, he, he learned this part. Yeah. Uh, but then maybe, uh, the reason why, um, I don't know, I must admit, is that uh, to know about what happened after that, you need to read the Chinese classics. Yeah. Uh, to begin with, last time I don't read Chinese texts. Yeah. So uh, only after I become a monk do I read. And uh, because he's, I don't think he ordained, so his work remained part, as part of the Chinese culture and not as the Chinese uh, Tripitaka. So I wouldn't have read it. Yeah. Uh, but you are free to go and read it and let me know. <laughs> the next, anxiety due to change. 
Monks, I will teach you agitation through clinging and non-agitation through non-clinging. Listen and attend carefully, I shall speak. Yes, Venerable Sir, those monks replied. The Blessed One said this. Now, so th this is the opening line. I will teach you agitation through clinging and non-agitation through non-clinging. This is very interesting. Uh, in almost everything that the Buddha teach, he will teach you both sides. He will teach you about how to go to hell also. But he will teach you how not, not to go to hell. Then you make your choice. You don't go to hell, you go. This is how you go to hell. You want to go to hell, you go and kill father, mother, arahants, <laughs> harm a Buddha, break up a community. That way you go to hell. Confirm go to hell. And not just hell. Go to Abdichi hell. The hell of uninterrupted suffering. Yeah. But he also teaches you how not to go to hell. Avoid these things. You, go to, you do not go to hell. Yeah. So, and monks. And how monks? Is there agitation through clinging? Here monks, the uninstructed whirling, who is not a seer of the noble ones, and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dharma, who is not a seer of superior person, persons, and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dharma, regards form as self, or self as possessing form, or form as in self, or self as in form. That form of his changes and alters. With the change and alteration of form, his consciousness becomes preoccupied with the change of form. Agitation and a constellation of mental states born of preoccupation with the change of form remain obsessing his mind. Because his mind is obsessed, he is frightened, distressed and anxious and through clinging he becomes agitated. So, uh, the word preoccupation appears now. Yeah. Uh, I must say that uh, I'm, I'm strongly influenced by some of this translation. But over the years, I start to use this word, preoccupy. Uh, partly because there was a period of time where I really become preoccupied with something. Yeah, then then I, when I observe myself, yeah, it's a preoccupation. Then I really appreciate why this word is used. When, when people are troubled by things, it is, it is that they are preoccupied with that matter, that person, that thing, that event. It just, you know... Keep on thinking. Huh? Keep on thinking. Ah, just cannot, cannot not think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you just keep on thinking, no? Uh, cannot, cannot stop, huh? And it's, it's really, at the end of the day, you sit down and think, hey, Mills, nothing really important, but I just keep on thinking. Yeah. So the thing itself is not important, but we feel that it's important. Sorry, I see that this is melting already, so I better have a mouth first.
你这样不会，你这样不会。这个是因为他有，他认为那个东西很真实啊，嗯、有一个啊，有一个我这样。真的其实有一种啊，而且这东西是很真实的嘛。其实，其实有接触到说，我好哇，多少次，真的是帮助。嗯，慢慢来了，会一步一步的。The important thing I often tell people is, not whether you are now enlightened, but have you become more enlightened? Not that, not that you have un totally unattached, but are you less attached? As long as there's a improvement, that's good enough. Yeah, because even if it's a small improvement, over time you become enlightened. Yeah, just don't get stuck somewhere or you know backpedal. So there's a, there's a part here which is um, quite interesting. Uh, something that you you want to take note. Uh, and it's uh, page thirty four. Is unskilled, undisciplined in their dharma, regards form as self, or self as possessing form, and so on. So this is the sequence uh, where uh, the teaching on no self coming. But I notice the Buddha don't immediately say form is no self. But he says that the unenlightened, the uninstructed whirling, regards form as self. Yeah, what is form? Physical. Physicality, yeah. uh, in particular, our body regards the body as self or physical form as self, or regards self as possessing form. That means the first one is this is me, this is me, I. Second one is there's an I that own this body. This body belongs to the I. Okay. Or third one. The form is in self. This there's a self that is without body, but the body is inside this self. And the third one, or the last one, is self as in form. That uh, this body is like a vessel, and the 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 self or the soul is inside this vessel. Yeah. So the different combination, a different combination. Um, in all the cases, it is uh, associating and holding on to this self as related, or this body as related. So when that happens, then that form of his changes and alters. This is uh, this is the part where, whether you regard or not, this body change. The trouble with with the regarding form as self and so on. Is that with the change and alteration of form, his consciousness becomes preoccupied with the change of form. Why? Because when you regard the physical form as who you are and yourself, then <clears throat> any changes to it will affect you. Now this this line is basically saying that, yeah, it will affect you. His consciousness become. His consciousness becomes preoccupied with the change of form, agitation, and a constellation of mental states born of preoccupation with the change of form remain obsessing his mind. Yeah. So this is how agitation and a constellation. The word constellation is usually used to describe 
the stars. Yeah. And you, you see, if you look at the, at the sky in Singapore, you cannot see the stars. But in countries without the, uh, the, the man-made light, you can see multitude of stars, constellation, a lot of different patterns and all over, you know. So it's not just agitation that arises. It's not just one or two other mental states, but a whole constellation, a constellation of mental states, born of preoccupation. All these mental states, how does it arise? Due to the preoccupation. Yeah. Preoccupation with, with the change of, of form, and all this obsess his mind. And when his mind is obsessed, yeah, because his mind is obsessed, he is frightened, distressed and anxious. And through clinging, he becomes agitated. Yeah. So this is very interesting because when you when we say uh, it, suffering arises from attachment, I think most people have to accept that or agree with that. Uh, but if you look at the twelve links, the twelve links itself from clinging then leads to becoming, becoming leads to birth, birth leads to aging and death. Yeah. There's no detailed description of this. The twelve links describe the macro macro worldview or macro process where we go through life after life. This is the micro process where in the life itself, day to day, moment to moment, as long as there's there's this preoccupation. As long as there's this attachment, yeah, or as long as there's this uh, way of regarding form as self, then it can lead to all this, and through clinging, he becomes agitated. Yeah. If you don't cling on to the to the form as self, then no problem. Yeah, as far as form is concerned. Now, if you look at the next paragraph. He regards feeling as self, perception as self, volition formation as self, consciousness as self. Yeah, so this part with the dot dot dot, this is what we learned earlier, the bridging. Yeah. In the Heart Sutra, we have So Xiang Xing Shi Yi This is basically the same thing. Yeah, that just as the earlier paragra- paragraph described uh, in relation to form, the same is said about feelings, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. Yeah. Now I'm going to read through everything. So you should read as he regards feeling as self, or self as possessing fe- feeling, or feeling as in self, or self as in feeling. That feeling of his changes and alters, the change and alteration of feeling, his consciousness become. He occupied with the change of feeling, agitation and a constellation of mental states born of preoccupation with the change of feeling remain obsessing his mind. Because his mind is obsessed, he is frightened, distressed and anxious and through clinging he becomes agitated. So the dot 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 include all that. For feeling, perception, mental uh, volition formation and consciousness. So consciousness he writes in full. Uh, consciousness as self or self as possessing consciousness or consciousness as in self or self as in consciousness 
the consciousness of his changes and alters. With the with the change and alteration of consciousness, his consciousness becomes preoccupied with the change of consciousness. Agitation and the constellation of mental states born of preoccupation with the change of consciousness remain possessing his mind. Because his mind is obsessed, he is frightened, distressed and anxious, and through clinging he becomes agitated. <clears throat> yeah, so it is in such a way, monks, that there is agitation through clinging. Yeah, so this is the first part. How does a person have agitation arise in him? Yeah, it is through clinging, ultimately. Yeah, attachment in other words. And how, monks, is there non-agitation through non-clinging? Uh, uh, Louis, maybe you would like to read this part. Uh, oh, okay. Or oh, maybe uh, orange. And how, monks, is there non-agitation through non-clinging? Mm. Here, monks, the instructed noble disciple, who is a seer of the noble ones, and is skilled and is disciplined in the Adhyama, who is a seer of superior persons, and is skilled and disciplined in the Adhyama, does not regard form as self, or self as possessing form, or form as in self, or self as in form. That form of his changes and alters, despite the change and alteration of form, his consciousness does not become preoccupied with the change of form. No agitation and constellation of mental states born of preoccupation with the change of form remain obsessing his mind. Because his mind is not obsessed, he is not frightened, distressed, or anxious, and through non-clinging, he does not become agitated. He does not regard feeling as self, perception as self, volitional formations as self. Okay, thank you. Oh. Uh, uh, okay. Sabine, maybe you can read the last. Consciousness as self, or self as possessing consciousness, or consciousness as in self, or self as in consciousness, that consciousness of his changes and alters. Despite the change and alteration of consciousness, his consciousness does not become preoccupied with the change of consciousness. No agitation and constellation of mental states, one of preoccupation with the change of consciousness, remain obsessing his mind. Because his mind is not obsessed, he is not frightened, distressed, or anxious, and through non-cleaning, he does not become agitated. It is in such a way, mums, that there is non-agitation through non-cleaning. Mm, okay. So, uh, the, the difference between enlightened and unenlightened is often just the opposite. Huh? Mm. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> If, if we look at this uh, sutta itself, uh, it doesn't directly talk about non-self. Yeah, it doesn't directly use the word non-self. Yeah. But here it says, he does not regard feeling as self. He does not regard form as self, feeling as self, perception as self, volition formation as self, consciousness as self. Yeah. Uh, we can... In a way, um, 
if we directly try to do it and say, oh, uh, let me not be attached to it, uh, you can try. But you, if you try, you may find that uh, it's a struggle. Yeah. For the for the enlightened being to do this, it is not that he just go and do it. Uh, there's a step. There's a few steps before that where he go and observe forms, feelings, perception, volition, formation, and consciousness. He observed these five. You observe it over and over again and observe how, whether it's permanent or impermanent, whether it's subject to change or not subject to change, whether it's bound up and subject to suffering or not. Yeah. And then over time, you relate to it differently. Yeah. And to the point where you see clearly that, uh, without doubt, you see clearly that it is the way it is. You cannot control it. Uh, you have no authority over it. That is not you, not yours, not mine, person or thing. Yeah, then your reaction becomes like that, that of an enlightened one. So, oftentimes we look at those who are more um, like so-called masters or those who are enlightened and we just try to emulate the end result without the process. Yeah. Which is why I mentioned earlier. Like, uh, if I just give you one word, non-attachment <laughs> or heart sutra, can I can no you don't need to come for class <laughs> to know that. Yeah. Uh, but to arrive at that conclusion, uh, that's the important part. Yes.每个都有因缘升起法不是会不会觉得无奈不是会觉得不安全不会觉得他很真的啊那就他们为什么我们为什么我知道他是原起法不过我们还是觉得很真实呃为什么啊呃有很多不同因素其中 uh, so she asked, when we meditate, we may observe that um, all the different thoughts or all the different mental states arise due to our the feelings towards uh, different circumstances 
or different people, different objects that we encounter. So then he, she asked, even as we know that, um, that it is due to all these conditions that things arise as a result, uh, why is it that even when we encounter it, sometimes we will still uh, have some reaction to it. We may still get affected by it. Uh, is it because we feel we still feel that it's very real? Uh, the simple answer is, yeah, it's because we feel it's real. But why do we still feel it's real even though we, we can understand or we can observe that it's arising due to conditions? Um, it's one thing to observe during meditation. It's another thing to observe it as it's happening. Yeah, that's one thing. The second thing is, uh, <coughs> the, the tendency for us to uh, observe segmentedly, meaning in some cases we observe, in some cases we don't observe. So for example, if something happened, then uh, there are certain outcomes. So, we may observe this, but we, need, we don't observe the outcome. Or we observe the outcome and that thing, but we don't observe before that. From what I observe, it is usually because we don't observe the whole sequence. What is your case? For us to have uh, uh, recollections of past events when we are meditating, that's normal. Uh, uh, but typically we try to um, to not be caught up with them. Yeah. Uh, initially we just observe the breath, but at a later stage, then when those recollections, basically our memories surface, then we observe it as well. Observe, but don't jump into it. Yeah. Yeah, observe but don't jump into it. Serene, yeah. uh, you know, uh, I have never mentioned before, uh, at, the, at a certain part of our learning and practice, we may be quite unaffected by many things. Yeah, by the certain stage, we have to observe even past events that's not happening anymore yeah. and see whether we get affected. Um, in a way, that's the, the real chasm. Yeah. Oh. So the simple answer is uh, if, you, if you are still affected, that means you haven't seen it thoroughly. Yeah. Uh, but that's not a criticism. Uh. <laughs> Another approach is 
like what I mentioned to Louis early, earlier, that how we contemplate over a matter or over something is also crucial. Yeah. Maybe you want to give me a generic but related example, then I can suggest to you how to do the contemplation. Ah, okay. Find a time, you can sit down and then... Uh, yeah. Some students in the past one month uh, have commented about... Uh, they ask how is why how is it that I don't seem to be too too affected by all these changes. Uh, I don't want to put up a, a, a false pretense that I'm not affected. Right? Uh, I yeah I'm definitely affected, but maybe not as affected as as many people. <laughs> yeah. That's one thing. The other thing is, uh, what we see now is the end result. Yeah, but all these one, these few years, there are many things that happen every week. Yeah, but every time I come for class, whether it's SGC, Thursday class, meditation class, or any class outside, <clears throat> I don't bring anything to class except the Dharma. At least I try to do that. Sometimes at the start of SGC, I will have suddenly or talk a lot about certain things. Yeah. Uh, that's my way of dealing with it. Yeah, but even then, I try to I do my reflection openly. Yeah, and uh, try to bring myself and everybody towards the Dharma. Uh, But I still don't say that it's not. I'm not affected. Yeah, it's a question of degree. Uh, at least for me, I don't end up having the kind of like, oh, you know, not being able to sleep at night. Yeah, I don't. I don't let that happen. Uh, the tissue paper is there. <laughs> The world in turmoil, page 35. The origin of conflict. Yeah, so this one is interesting. The origin of conflict. The Brahmin Aramananda Aramadanda 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 approached the venerable Mahakachana, exchanged friendly greetings with him and asked him, why is it, Venerable Ma, Master Kachana, that Katyas fight with Katyas, Brahmins with Brahmins, and householders with householders? And so this Venerable Maha Kachana, uh, this is the, the Venerable that I mentioned many times. Uh, he is one of the chief disciples. And his, his uniqueness is, whenever the Buddha or anyone say a, a short verse, yeah, he can explain the full detail in very detailed 
high explanation. Yeah. So, uh, this Brahmin asked him, uh, uh, why do people fight among each other? Yeah. Why? So he replied, it is Brahmin, because of attachment to sensual pleasures, adherence to sensual pleasures, fixation on sensual pleasures, addiction to sensual pleasures, obsession with sensual pleasures, holding firmly to sensual pleasures, that Katyas fight with Katyas, Brahmins with Brahmins, and householders with householders. So, uh, over here, Katyas, Brahmins, and householders. Katyas are the warriors. Brahmins are actually the, the, the group of people, one of the castes, yeah, that are uh, worshippers of Brahmas. Then householder are the lay people. Brahmins are actually priest caste, yeah, the priests. So you notice the reply. Uh, Katyas, Brahmins and householders, these three are grouped together. Brahmins, although they are priests, but they are grouped together. And they are all fighting over sensual pleasure. Sensual pleasure. Yeah. Why is it, Master Kachana, that ascetics fight with ascetics? Yeah. Ascetics are those who are uh, non-householder. Yeah. Katiyas are also householder actually. They are, they are the warrior caste. Yeah. The the kings, the emperors, and the priests. Brahmins are also householders, but they are religious householders. Householders are those who are normal householders. Yeah. So beyond these three, there's another group. Ascetics. These are the what we call monks and nuns. Yeah, those who don't stay in the house, those who don't have household, a family, and so on. So he, the the Brahmin asks again, "Why is it, Master Kachana, that ascetics fight with ascetics? It is Brahmin because of attachment to views, adherence to views, fixation on views, addiction to views, obsession with views, holding firmly to views that ascetics." Fight with ascetics. Okay. When I read this, yeah, I I I I smile, I laughed, yeah, because yeah, you know, I I admitted to you all just now, yeah, if I talk to some monks and they have wrong wrong view, of, wow, I will really, <laughs> yeah. Last time on Facebook, wow, I will when I see something that's written that's wrong, wow, I will. Wow. <laughs> yeah, keyboard fight. And then sometimes they will accept, sometimes even when I quote the sutta, they, they just ignore my reply, you know, and they just say whatever they want to say. Then I, I was saying last time, uh, did you just, did you read what I said? This is said by the Buddha. Then I said, uh, but, uh, but after a few times, I realized no point. If, if I quote from the sutta and that doesn't mean that you have to take it as true. But you just ignore it and you just say whatever you want to say. Then, <laughs> so after a while, at some point, I, I stopped replying to all these things. Only when people ask me, then I reply. Mm. Yeah. And if I reply and the person gives this kind of idea, I just ignore it. I just don't bother. Yeah. I mean, if you want to insist, then up to you. Yeah. Hey, come on, come on. Hey, 
Oh. 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 So that's why sometimes I ask students this question. Oh, stretch. Ah, stretch. So I ask students this question. Uh, what is one thing that get us agitated in the past one week, the past three months, the past one year? Yeah. Write down the things that get you agitated. Um, if we were to go further and ask ourselves, what is the reason why we get agitated? Many times it boils down to this. Either attachment to central pleasure or attachment to viewpoints. Yeah. Must should be like this, should be like that. Yeah. Now when it comes to this, uh sometimes we are inclined, Buddhists are inclined to think that ah, don't let be attached to anything, so there's no right and wrong. Uh, but that's not very right also. Because there is the, there's a proper way of doing things that is more harmonious, there, there are other ways that is not so harmonious. Uh, but it's also important to realize that there's no absolute way that is harmonious. For example, <clears throat> in Singapore, we drive on the left side of the road. But if you think that that's the absolute right way of driving, then you're wrong. In US, they drive on the right side. Of. If you go to US and you insist that you, everybody should drive on the left side, then you're wrong. If Americans come to Singapore and insist that Singaporeans are driving on the wrong side, they are wrong. But both are not absolutely right also. You know? However, <coughs> although there's no absolute rightness, when you're in Singapore, for safety in driving, you should conform with driving on the left side of the road. Right side. Left, side. left side. Left side of the road. Our right driver is on the right side. Yeah. But left side of the road. Mm. Ah. So there is still the conventional right and wrong. <clears throat> Conventionally, uh, certain things are done in a certain way. Uh, through the conventional, through convention, then we can get things done in a certain way. Yeah. Uh, but even that convention, by definition, convention means it's just how everybody do things. Yeah. So, which also means that it's not absolutely right. Uh, so, right and wrong. Uh, through counseling many people, I learned a lot about right and wrong. I hear a lot of people getting upset about many things. Kids get upset with their parents because of a handphone. 
So I asked the kid, I said, no, I, I usually start off when I do this kind of counseling, I say, Papa, what's wrong with using the phone? Then the child, see, see, what's wrong? <laughs> then the, father, the parents like, oh, come here. Bring my son here, you're supposed to counsel him, then you kind of <laughs> disagree with me. I said, no, it's true. Right? There's nothing wrong with user, using the phone. If it's wrong, it should be banned. If it's wrong, you shouldn't use also. But if you use, then it's okay to use. The trouble is, uh, if you are not allowed to use, and because of that you get upset with your parents, then is that right? And that is wrong. Nothing wrong with using. But if you get upset over your parents because your parents don't let you use, then that is wrong. The upset itself is wrong. Why? Because I tell them very simply, which is more important. Parents or your phone. You cannot look me in the eye and say that it's your phone, right? You cannot be. So, at the end of the day, I've counseled so many people, I always just ask them this simple thing. Just put the two things on the table and ask yourself, which is more important? Which is more important? Is it the thing itself, the event itself, yeah, or the way of doing things itself that is more important than that person? Yeah, which is more important? Uh, of course, easy for me to say. Uh, when I share with them this way of thinking, then I reflect on myself. Hey, do I fault? Do I make the mistake? And sometimes I make the mistake, you know. Ah, then I, oh, okay, I must correct myself. Yeah. But it also means that we don't always relate to people or things in the correct manner. Yeah. In the correct manner. We don't. We forget what is more important. And I will take this all the way to the point where we talk about what is right and wrong. Principle. Uh, in a way, I'm a very... I'm a, I'm a person who is very attached to principle. But I, at some point I ask myself, uh, what is the point of principles? Principles are uh, there to serve us. Uh, principles must serve a higher good and not as an end by itself. If principles are an end by itself, then what is the purpose of the principles? Yeah. Principles must serve something, the greater good, serve us to bring us happiness. So for example, at home, a principle of, let's say, oh, at home, we have this house rule, we have this principle. Everybody must come home by 10, for example. <clears throat> okay. Is it a right or wrong principle? Who am I to say? I often tell parents, you are the parents. Uh, Sifu, as much as I'm Sifu, I can say all I want, but this is your house, you must decide on your house rules, your principle. Your, for your life, you must decide on your own principle, because you are the one who is going to live with it. But at the end of the day, you must ask yourself, this principle, or this rule, or this value, it should bring happiness. <clears throat> yeah. Originally, it brings happiness. 
but the way we implement it, the way we execute it, the way we carry it out, sometimes bring more frustration with people. You know, uh, either because maybe it, maybe it cannot be totally applied, or maybe because of other circumstances. Then we forget, and we still insist on the principle. Take for example, this is not so much principle. The whole idea that if you break a bowl, is unlucky. Yeah, there was one Chinese New Year. Uh, my mom <coughs> asked me to, you know, uh, uh, prepare the rice. So while preparing, then I there's some rice stuck on the ladle. So I knock, knock, knock. Usually, no matter how you knock, it won't break. Or that day, I just knock one. Pow! Caught. <laughs> the bowl just fell. <laughs> so when my mom saw it, quickly, quickly, throw it away, throw it. Don't let father see. So all these years, he didn't know. Until one day, I mentioned in the talk. <laughs> uh, another day, another New Year. Suddenly, usually, for, for me, for many parents, you have to ask your kid, come do housework, come do housework, and they are like, ah, yeah, yeah. But some are very automatic. Uh, I'm not so automatic sometimes. But that Chinese New Year, first day of Chinese New Year, I wake up and then I decide, ah, I shall be a good boy this year. I shall be a good son this year. Let me sweep the floor. Sweep <laughs> 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 the floor on the first day of Chinese New Year. Oh. Wow, my mother saw it. Wow. <laughs> Father, heaven, wake up. Quickly keep. Uh. <laughs> Because it's considered to be unlucky. Uh, I have in in my life, I have often challenged a lot of this custom, this mindset, uh, and I I really cannot understand what is the big deal. But over the years, I start to appreciate that maybe long long time ago, five hundred. 1,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, maybe to sweep the floor during the Chinese New Year, uh, maybe it brings some problem. Maybe because in the past it's not so clean, you know. In the past when you sweep, uh, the whole place really becomes dusty. And it takes, a, it takes a long time to clean up. So Chinese New Year, <laughs> you're supposed to be celebrating and then you still sweep up all the dust, then all the, everything gets dirty again. Maybe. That's why they have the spring cleaning beforehand. They're supposed to clean up everything so that everything is clean already. Makes sense, right? But once it becomes a custom that is immutable, un- unchangeable, and you tie in some magical consequences to it, ah, then it becomes a problem. I ask myself, what, what is wrong with breaking something? I mean, I'm not saying it's good to break things. But... Yesterday, uh, two days ago, I mentioned about ropes. About how in the Buddha's time, clothing come, the, don't come easy. So if you tear your clothes, that's it, you, know, you may not get one after, don't know how long. You know? It's the same goes for our bow. Anything that you have, material objects are very rare last time. Yeah? For one, because most people are very stupid, they don't know how to make things. <laughs> 
So that's why you can make a living just by making bowls last night. You know? I mean, today it's like, factory worker will make bowls. <laughs> What's the big deal, you know? Like, what, $5 you get one whole, you know, 10 bowls or what? Yeah, easily. But in the past, it's not so easy. Plastic bowl, you know, you've got to really hammer it for it to break, no? But clay, clay bowl, you drop, crap, gone. And it, it would mean that it is, you're going to lose money. And a lot of money last night. And that's why it's bad luck, ma. <laughs> How many bowls do you have at home anyway? Nowadays, no. Before, before it's even broken, hey, Corning just came out with new things. Hey, we, we give away, give to Salvation Army. <laughs> we bring to Corning. Son. <laughs> we, we buy, I bought a new set. John Little, there's a sale, you know. Corning wear, wow, full set. Wow. Because that day we, we bring out, then one of the knife is missing. Now it's incomplete. We must buy a whole new set. But last time it's not. So this is my own understanding. That if you consider something like the Chinese custom, many of these customs or principles started off with a good reason. Yeah. But the reason don't apply anymore. Don't really, don't really apply anymore. But yet, we hold on to it thinking that breaking a bowl will bring back luck. It is this wrong view that brings back luck. <laughs> not the breaking of bowl. Yeah, not breaking of bowl. And if I may conclude, uh, similarly for many things in life. Uh, many things in life, it is our mindset. Uh, like for many couples I counsel or parents class, I tell them, I, I'm not, I was never, never married, huh? but I can imagine the common quarrels for many families, not all, but many families. This one put there, la, that one put here, la, like this, la, like that, la, then quarrel. And these are small quarrels that accumulate, you know. Yeah. Because it's not big enough for you to really quarrel, so, and for, especially for Chinese, passive aggressive. Want to say, don't want to say, say, then I look pity. I don't say, I also fed up. So, <laughs> so, uh, so, that's why do beings live in hate? You see, so nicely. Yeah. Why? Because of that, uh, passive person. <laughs> Saka, ruler of the devas, ask the blessed one. Beings wish to live without hate, harming, hostility, or enmity. They wish to live in peace, yet they live in hate, harming one another, hostile, and as enemies. By what fetters are they bound, sir, that they live in such a way? So Saka, Saka is one of the heavenly beings, uh, and he is... Uh, quite a high level uh, heavenly being and here it says ruler of the devas yeah. uh, doesn't mean that all are under him eh? but a, a whole group of them sort of somehow because of the rebirth uh, are under him yeah. uh, so he appeared in many sutras yeah. he appeared in many sutras and he often come to see the Buddha and ask for advice so here another word uh, fetters. fetters refer to certain uh, qualities that bind us. It is like 
uh, if you take a rope and tie you up, then you are bounded by it. Yeah. So fetters refer to things that tie us up. Or tie us up. <coughs> uh, Louis, would you like to read? Let's the of the devas, which is When they are when these are present, they arise. 
So in this case, uh, the whole sequence is envy and niggardliness. Uh, they arise from liking and disliking. Then how does liking and disliking arise? They arise from desire. You desire something, then you have liking towards it. Uh, here the desire is the very raw kind of desire. It's not the one that is after that. So because of that want of it, then you see something that you want, uh, you, you come up with liking. Uh, but how does how do you have desire from it, from thinking? Yeah. So in the in some classes I mentioned about iPhone. Yeah. Uh, if you have never encountered an iPhone, you cannot have desire for it or have liking for it. Fifteen years ago, can you have desire for iPhone? No. You cannot have have any of that. Yeah. If you have never encountered a dog before, you cannot possibly say I like a dog. But you don't even know such a thing exists. It is when you have encountered it, then you think about it, and you have or you have the different um, uh, perception or opinion about it. So here behind it says what gives rise to thinking, uh, are elaborated perceptions and notions. Let's look at the footnote number thirty-four. This is chapter one. Okay. Number oh, 14, sorry. Fourteen, fourteen. The meaning of this obscure uh four two seven. Papan Papancha Sanya Sanka. The meaning of this obscure compound is not is elucidated in the Nikayas. The term seems to refer to perceptions and ideas that have become infected by subjective biases, elaborated by the tendencies to craving, conceit, and distorted views. According to the commentaries, craving and craving, conceit, and views are the three factors responsible for conceptual elaboration. Papancha. A detailed study of the expression is. Nana, Nanda, concept and reality in early Buddhist thought. Mm. Uh, this might well be what we call uh, in one of the school Shi Wang Fengyue. Yeah, this deluded discrimination. Yeah. Uh, it's not a one-to-one uh, replacement, uh, but this elaborated perception and notion. Uh, I think it's quite close to what we what in my school in the school I'm in we call Shi Wang Feng Uh false uh, discrimination. Yeah. Shi Wang Feng false discrimination. Yeah or or yeah. False deluded discrimination. Uh, it it always boils down to that when we come in contact with things, we don't see it as it is, so we have our we form wrong perceptions of it. And from the wrong perceptions it gives rise to more thinking that becomes more and more solid, more and more concrete. And then from there give rise to desire. Because we view it as so real, yeah, yeah. Then from there all the other problems come about. 
But for if you look at this sequence, most of us just want to get rid of envy and negativeness. Most of the time, we don't want to get rid of liking and disliking. Most of the time, we don't even know that this sequence is there. And so, when we try to just remove envy, negativeness, uh, we fail. Yeah. Or we may end up suppressing it. Yeah. Uh, that's why in Buddhism, the approach is always to go and reflect, observe, and try to contemplate on the thing that we are attached to that give rise to envy. What time is it now? 11. 11, huh? Oh, good. Good. Okay. So we stop here at page 36. I still want uh, environment and circumstances definitely play a part, uh, but it is not the absolute uh, final factor. Mm. But we don't say that it has nothing to do with it also. Uh, there are those who say it's absolutely due to circumstances, there are those who say that it's absolutely nothing to do with it. Both are extreme. Yeah. Uh, circumstances plus our own decision plus our own past life our own exposure yeah, everything together any uh, thoughts or questions?